Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Millennial History, a show produced by Resonate Productions with Are We Europe and hosted by Andrea Voots. Today is part two of two with stories from Northern Ireland. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode where we'll have another anecdote from Andrea. Here we go. I mean, I just find it really interesting. <laughs> Here. This is the talk about everything. Because there's just so much to talk about. Prove ourselves worthy of the majority. Millennial History. Welcome to Millennial History. In this podcast, we talk to millennials who lived big events in recent world history from up close. Last time we met Agnes, Chris and Michael. They all grew up in Ireland and Northern Ireland during the Troubles. A long and messy conflict with deep roots in all of life. The Troubles started around 1968. They played out mostly in Northern Ireland and ended in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreements. This is our second episode on identity politics and moving on from a place of trouble. Here's what you can expect. I think the hardest thing is probably to understand how much it is everywhere. You have your community and they have theirs and that's it's supposed to be separate. That's like the most fundamental thing. Everything becomes extremely black and white, right? Yeah. Or green and orange, as the case may be. What I'm talking about with my generation in Ireland, not feeling that we can kind of leap forward into some completely new identity, that we're just the next baby step. My name is Andrea Voets. I am a musical journalist. I'm joined in the studio by composer and sound designer Luke Dean. And all of the music that you will hear has been offered by musicians from Northern Ireland and Ireland. Where Agnes, Michael and Chris grew up, life was divided along the lines of identity politics. Some streets, places and institutions were for Catholics, others for Protestants. Whether someone was Catholic or Protestant was an important social factor. It did influence the relationships with the people around you. Chris grew up in a Protestant family in the north, Michael in a Catholic one on the border and Agnes in between these identities in both Ireland and Northern Ireland. What are the markers that people use to even see if somebody's Catholic or Protestant? You know, where are you from? What's your name? What school do you go to? These are all like very like loaded questions that you have to like navigate when you're young in the north, for sure. Well, I don't know what they actually... So you, you, I guess you'd be asked questions. So there's like people would say things like uh, Catholics' eyebrows are closer together. Um, but like, like Catholics' eyebrows are closer <laughs> together? I don't know if anyone actually believes it. <laughs> I doubt anyone ever believed it, but um, that's what people would say. But it would just be questions. It definitely was the case that, you know, you would, when you'd meet somebody from the north, that you would, like, try to find out what background they come from, you know, whether it's through their name or that kind of thing. You know, it's almost just to be able to put people into a place in your head. Which school you went to would tell you, where you lived would tell, your name would give you away. You can generally tell whether somebody's from a Catholic background or a Protestant background by their surname. Mm-hmm. Or their first name, because mm-hmm. there aren't many Protestants that are named Patrick, for example. There's a huge sense of being able to place people just based on, on their accents. I also remember going into a bar one time 
in Belfast and being told by the barman that 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 we weren't going to get served, kind of saying, I think you'd be better off going somewhere else. Um, and that was based on my southern accent. Another thing that people will do is like ask you to pronounce H in a particular way. And I don't know which way it is, but the H and H. And if you're a Protestant, you will say it one way. And if you're Catholic, you'll say it another. Yeah, yeah. So, and people will like, I, I, I remember hearing about people that would have like, ask you to say certain words you know like ask you a question which would include that word and then you would say that word as a response to that question that which sounds is, so offensive it's so, it's, it's so offensive offensive but um, I think when you live in the north you, you grow to have a sense of humour about it and you're just like that's it's just sort of funny like you know <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the brilliant things actually about the north is that people have a really really good sense of humour there's a very particular like type of like Irish humour or like Northern Irish humour that surrounds all these things. Because if you can't laugh about it, you know, what else are you going to do? So I went to um, to Palestine a few years ago. And it reminded me a bit of Belfast because of that kind of invisible but really definite map. You'd have paving stones painted, so where I was it was red, white and blue, which show you you're in a Protestant area. And you'd have flags and you'd have murals with um, the symbols, the emblems of the paramilitary group that was in charge there on the walls. You would, you're told, and it's still like that today in some areas, quite a lot of them, you're told you were entering a certain area. There were places you just couldn't go to. You didn't question, like, there's just yeah. whole sections of map I couldn't go. My parents would have been like, if you're going to that side of town, just be careful. And if anyone asks your name, don't tell them. Or if anybody asks where you're, well, maybe not necessarily my name, but yeah, like if somebody asks what part of town you live in, don't tell them you live in this part of town because then you know they'll know you're a protestant and then you know just just to like avoid any problems that could happen you know because things like that could happen even still when i was growing when i was 12 which would have been when would that have been uh 2000, 2004 2004 yeah i remember going on holiday to turkey as a teenager we went to this very um british uh, sort of resort you know it was basically a resort where exclusively British people were going on holidays and one of the bars said Irish welcome in the window and I remember saying, really thinking to myself well what's the norm like if uh, if you feel you need to put the sign up I can remember when I first came to the Netherlands and someone asked me who I'd voted for and I really thought how dare you you, you, you can't ask me but when I first came here, people would always ask me, are you Catholic or Protestant or assume I'm Catholic or something? And I would think, you, you, you can't ask me that. It's never been a good idea to identify whether you're Catholic or Protestant yeah. in the North. Why would you broadcast it? You're just asking, you just put it, you're just putting a target on your head. You, you just don't do it, you know. It's, it would actually be, it's really arrogant to do it, you know part of growing up there was always being questioned you know my brother talks about it still it frustrates him that people always say but where are you really from 
You know, like, who are you? It's like, it's not trusted. Where are you from? You're like, oh, you know, it's Tanner Griffin, so you're just like, look, someone else about No, where are you really from? Oh, my mum's English. No, where are you really from? Well, I was, I was born in Germany. No, where are you really from? Um, well, I lived in the South for a few years. Ah, uh, that's where you're from. I guess the hardest thing to explain is just like, yeah, what what it is to have that identity um, and how you navigate around like socialising with people, um, the like vague sense of like paranoia that crops up when you're in a, in a part of town where maybe you know that you're not going to be welcome. If somebody asks your name on the street, then they can identify you straight away. And if you, if somebody, if you, if somebody who's if the wrong person asks that question and you give the wrong answer, then you can be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Like somebody could beat you up or somebody could kill you. Because that's the reality of... That, that is the reality of it. It's just dangerous as well. It feels dangerous. What were the dangers? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know what they were. But they just... Um... They just felt, you felt like you'd get in really bad trouble. You felt like you, I think you felt like you could die. I think the hardest thing is probably to understand how much it is everywhere. It's in everything. Um, so it's in the way everything works, the whole society. So one moment that's kind of stuck in my mind for me was the time when I, um, I'd fallen in love with someone and I was about to sleep with him and he told me his religion because he was aware that I thought he had a different religion because we didn't talk about religions, all of us. And it was like he just wanted me to know, you know, before we actually had sex. Just, it just, it, it was like, it was, it was, it was quite an honourable thing to do, actually. Like, it was literally in his bedroom, you know, maybe with a half-dress, like, just, yeah, I'm Protestant. Do you remember what you answered? No, I don't know if I even answered. It was just like, but I, I definitely think um, that I was grateful, you know? It's like making sure the consent is fully informed or something. There's no place in this world where I belong when I'm gone. I won't know the right from the wrong. We make divisions and they are usually quite superficial. I mean, they are, they're the color of your skin, they're the way you dress. They're um, the shape of the building you worship in, and they are some of the way, you know. What, we, we, you know, we end up highlighting differences. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like in Northern Ireland, certainly with the colours of the flags, and, you know, the colours become important uh, and have a political message sometimes, you know, it's kind of crazy. But we, I think we do that in this society as well to a certain extent, you know. We had, like, what were called design and technology classes, which are like woodworking classes. We had to make uh, a frog. Once we'd like finished off our wood making, put it all together, sanded everything, made it look really nice. We were then given the task, of course, of like painting the frog. Um, and I maybe wasn't the most inventive thinker at the time. Um, didn't have the greatest imagination, but Seeing as it was a frog, I thought the most like appropriate thing to paint the frog was to paint it as uh, to give it the color green, um, which I thought was like 
perfectly acceptable, all very good. Um, and I like took it up to the teacher so he could look at it and assess it. And he turned around to me and he said, so you painted it green, did you? And I was like, I didn't really understand like property why. And then I, I sort of looked around and like started paying attention to like what the colors everybody else was coloring in their frogs. And they colored them orange and red, white, and blue and all these sort of like different colors that were like associated with like unionism and Protestantism to paint the frog green would have been seen as quite transgressive. It just sort of seemed absurd and ridiculous to me anyway. Everything becomes extremely black, black and white, right? Yeah. Or green and orange, as the case may be. My parents also made the decision to not really tell me anything to do with, like, Catholics or Protestants or Unionists or Nationalists or anything like that. You know, through, like, a very slow process, you start to become aware of, like, oh, this is what a Catholic or Protestant is. Um, and then, you know, like, I, I discovered, you know, I'm from a Protestant background. And then I was like, okay... So I'm a, I'm a Protestant, that means that I have to hate Catholics. And then I went into school and I was like, so what guys are you? So I just found out I'm a Protestant. So like, what are you? Do you know what you are? And they were like, oh, well, I'm a Catholic and I'm a Catholic. And, I'm a, and then I was like, oh, right, yeah. All right, well, you guys are okay. I just decided that, yeah, it didn't matter. Like it obviously didn't matter because um, I had loads of friends that were Catholic um, and yeah, it was just like, well, these guys are okay and I, I, if I don't, if I start like disliking them now and hating them now, I'm not going to have any friends. So, <laughs> you know, my parents decided that after primary school that I should be sent to a Protestant secondary school just so I could like um, be more in touch with like whatever that is, that identity or whatever. I presume that there were like people that like in that school that maybe never talked to a Catholic in their lives. After school had finished, I would go into town and I would hang out with other people. And some of those other people would have been Catholics. And it would have been very easy to tell who you were because everybody has school uniforms on. I may have been the only person that would have been wearing the Protestant school uniform. So I would have stuck out maybe like a sore thumb amongst that group of people, you're just not supposed to be friends with them. Bottom line, you know, like, you know, you shouldn't talk to these people, you know. You have your community and they have theirs, and that's, it's supposed to be separate. That's like the most fundamental thing. I really didn't enjoy it. Like, I found it really, really difficult. Like, I'd never been in an environment where I felt like everybody had these, like, viewpoints towards, in inverted commas, the other side, where it was, like, really, really, like, derogatory, I thought. People were being really, like, cruel and saying cruel things about, you know, people that were Catholic. And I just didn't, I just couldn't, I just couldn't understand it. Like how reductive it is. And that makes me angry. And like the fact that people like have certain viewpoints towards other people and see them as like non-human and see them as objects that should be hated. I just don't, like I personally just don't understand that because that isn't the experiences that I had with those people. <laughs> or with people from those backgrounds. So that's the sort of stuff that bothers me the most. Yeah. You must have been such a strong kid. Uh, I don't know. Um, I definitely didn't feel strong when I was in that school. Yeah, I found it very hard to be there and to make friends because I just felt like everybody around me was just seeing the world in a very different way from, what, from how I felt. Mm -hmm. 
Why, why do people have fights about stuff that's so unimportant, like whether you're Catholic or Protestant, as if people are actually fighting about when you take the, the host, whether that is the body of Christ or not. I mean, that's not what people are actually fighting about. It's like, it, it, it's tribal, it's different peoples. It's a history built up of tit for tat. There's no point in having a discussion because it's all like defined so tribally, you know, and your side, my side, this side. It just wouldn't go anywhere. Like there's totally no point. Society was divided for so many generations. The Troubles were only the final conflict in a long series of conflicts on the island. And then, in 1998, years of talks culminated in an agreement on Good Friday. Do you remember the agreements being signed? Oh, yeah. What kind of a day was that? Um, I mean, I can just remember, I can really remember the sense of it not, of, of, that it wasn't going to happen. Because it just seemed like it just, I remember all of the news reports were about stalemates. And then all of a sudden there was just this kind of magical occurrence that seemed to happen. I can really remember that. You know, there being this, sense that actually the impossible was happening and that um you know and there was a phase then where even where Northern Ireland was being considered uh you know a, a study in conflict resolution you know and uh, there was you know like I, I can just remember there was an anthropologist that came to live in my house for a period uh, this from from Argentina and they said that was what caused the peace process, was that people went out of town raves to clubs that were not within the Catholic Protestant streets, but out of town. And they all took, you know, a love drug and danced together. So people met each other for the first time. Someone who said to me, like, it's rave music and ecstasy is, is the reason that the, the peace process happened, you know? And I, I think it's, that's a valid analysis. Why not? It's as good as any other I've heard. I'm going to use a slang word, which is like if you take um, ecstasy, people will say you're winged. So I think when you're winged off your face, you just don't care if somebody's a Catholic or Protestant. You just love everybody. So, yeah, I think I guess that's a very like lovely thing, actually. You know, it's just like everybody's great. You just want to hug everybody, kiss everybody. When the war, um, when it became obvious that in Syria, the country was being destroyed, like, I can't pretend to have any idea of what that's like, but like, it was just like this little bit of me that I thought, fuck, I know how bad even just the troubles were for society and for everything, for education, for political debate, for happiness, for, you know, social progress, you know, for all sorts of things. And you think, I know what even that sort of, that level of kind of siege, and then you, it just felt total desperation of how long it would take a country to rebuild after actual war and where countries destroyed by war. So it's that feeling of how much it permeates everything and also into the future. There was this desired kind of as a modern people to wash our hands of this kind of ugly past. Albeit that it's very attractive to kind of think, well, we, you know, we come from this common place, you know, we have this common European history. I think it's, it's important for Ireland to consider the growth of our national identity as something that is still very much a work in progress. 
did your family lose people during the during the conflict in the north? Yeah. Um, maybe I wouldn't talk about it. Yeah, that's alright. Yeah. People have been affected by the troubles in really hard ways. Um, and you don't know what people have seen and what it could bring up. People have seen other people being killed right before their eyes. People have seen bombs going off and killing several people. You know, like all that stuff happens. That's all like very, you know, it's part of being in like, I guess what, what once was a very active war zone. I think that there was a huge culture of secrecy um, in, I think in, in our region, you know, that would have been related to the, you know, related to the conflict, I suppose, you know, because people felt that they had to protect information so much. And, or there was a sense in my parents' generation that, you know, some things should be kind of kept, should be kept in as close quarters as possible. I would think that if, you know, when you're living under oppressive power, you're probably being careful that, you know, you, that the people don't find out things about you or they... That if you've said something, that you know that it doesn't get passed along, and I think there's a huge amount of anxiety around that. Is there intergenerational trauma also? You know, I mean, there is inherited trauma without any doubt. I've certainly heard that um, intergenerational trauma exists. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it does exist, um, and people have found it. Uh, I think there was a study done in a part of Belfast where. Children that had never experienced the trouble seem to have signs of PTSD. Certainly one thing I remember is um, walking home one night, when I was my second year at university, and police following me, and me thinking, you know, what's going on? What have they done? Oh, you know, what have I done? Why, why are they following me? What's their intention? What's going on? Really getting really nervous police cars just like, you know, or maybe it was went around the block and came back, whatever. But it kind of, you know, um, accompanied me home. And at a certain point I realised it was protecting me and I was really surprised <laughs> because I just saw the police as, as a threat, <laughs> really. I just saw them as dangerous. Something really hard to also shake off. Yeah, I haven't, sh- I haven't shaken it off totally. So there is a kind of, um, like, there is this, there is a physical danger that, it, that, um, that I still know that I have that sense of that physical danger in me, to be honest. Um, and I sometimes feel it um, a little bit, even now. In the leap to, to progressive you know, um, outward thinking. We kind of try to to wallpaper over our traumas, you know, that are inherited. I think, for example, the whole history of um, problems with alcoholism in Ireland. Like, I think, I think there. My my feeling is that there's a link between that and the culture of secrecy. I think you know, there's you know an inordinately large amount of Alcoholism, particularly in my parents' generation, I mean, and it's something that I hope won't be the same in, in my generation. Huge mental, mental health problems. Again, I don't 
have the exact figures, but but in terms of male suicide, we have I think the second highest rate in in Europe. Um, yeah, we've a very very you know, and and again, like that's in terms of my own region, like I people I would say there are certainly five people that were that I was at school with who have committed suicide, which you know is you know I mean I'm I'm thirty two like. There are things that you carry through that you haven't really dealt with, and I suppose the the flip side of that is that I would think that there are when you talk about the rate of depression and the um, and the high suicide rate, I think that those are related to contemporary you know social problems and you know lack of resources, but I think they're also linked to probably anxieties that are inherited from previous generations, and it's not enough to think well, I, I live in a different world now, so this stuff isn't relevant to me anymore. I think you need to actually go back and start thinking about, well, could this have something to do with the way that the society that I live in functions or is? It's like, you know, that Krishnamurti quote that it's no sign of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. I mean, I know, you know, I mean, whatever traumas I've gone through myself, I mean... They've all they all only come to a place of healing through talking openly about them, you know. And I have immediate experience of people not having done that, you know. And um, and I think that's a very difficult thing. Burying stuff never really works in in the long term. It was so hard for me to find people who wanted to talk, mm-hmm. and you are not surprised by that. Why is that? So I think, you know, from one point of view, it is just a cultural thing where people have become used to containing information. And then from another point of view, it's because it's a a continuing situation. An awful lot of the people who are involved, you know, are, you know, they're still alive. They're still relatively young. There's that sense of, well, you know, people have to go on with their day to day life. There's a real difference between the resolution of issues and the naming of issues in an event-to-event type way. When I would talk about, you know, say, stuff that would have happened around home, these are relationships that continue with, you know, with real people that you'll bump into in the shop. it's a big thing to be able to talk to family members about stuff like this and I suppose from that point of view everything is still very close and I feel like it's still I'm still at the stage where I just want to be able to kind of talk with my parents openly about stuff that they might have experienced we're still at the stage where just being able to talk about things domestically is really important and try to try to bring stuff up and you know in a way that heals rather than creates you know more wounds totally Northern Irish in the sense of, you know, just a 
that's where his family's from, that's where he's from. And me saying something about the Northern Irish or something, and he threw his arm around me and said, that's because you're one of us. And I can remember this warm feeling, and it stayed with me, you know, like a sort of, instead of that questioning that I often experience, like, who are you? Oh, you're the other, you're the other, you're the other. What? No, but you're not telling me the truth. You know, that feeling that I usually had was, um, was replaced and I really, you know, I really value that moment. You need to overcome yourself and overcome an impossible situation in order to create something entirely new. What I'm talking about with my generation in Ireland not feeling that we can leap forward into some completely new identity, that we're just the next baby step in a process. People more than ever see things in like a black and white fashion, you know, like either something's morally wrong or it's morally right. Your podcast is called Millennial Histories and I think this is like a real millennial problem, right? It's, you know, easy to get offended about things that, like, you don't agree with. I don't feel inclined to be that way, I don't think. And I, I'd say that, like, growing up in the North is probably part of that, you know, because you just encounter that stuff all the time. You can just let it be. You know, it doesn't need to be rectified and it doesn't need to be sorted out. Like, it just that's just how life is. Um, and that's okay. And it doesn't, it shouldn't affect how you live. You can still be a good person when you, when you can. <laughs> This show was made by Resonate Productions. We make musical journalism to bring to light emotional blind spots in society. Many thanks to all the musicians from Northern Ireland and Ireland who offered their music to support this episode. Anna Mieke, Grossnet, Socks in the Frying Pan, Colmecon Omora, Son Zept, Mike Vass, Lisa Hennigan, Stargaze and Alana Henderson. You can find all of them on facebook.com slash musicaljournalism. See you next time. Stefano from Are We Europe jumping in again. We hope you enjoyed those two episodes and found them interesting. We'll be back in two weeks with part one of two from East Germany. Now, here's creator Andrea Wutz talking about how music and her love for it influenced these episodes. We'll see you in two weeks. 
I am a harpist and it's not a coincidence that I became a harpist because this music of Ireland really always carried me and supported me in my life since I was very, very young. And I had kind of forgotten about it, that I love it so much until I made the millennial history together with Luke about Ireland. We went to Ireland and I remembered that I liked this music so much by going into the modern traditional musicians of Northern Ireland. And I got so hooked on this music that I bought an Irish harp with metal strings and had that made for me and started to learn how to play it. And I bought this book, The Songs of the People, which is 700 songs from the North and the South. And I played all of them. <laughs> and then I selected 20 of them that I liked the best, of which there were even a few doubles without me realizing it. And I turned it into harp pieces with harp and electronics and loop stations. And we had a meetup in Amsterdam where I played these songs for the first time for an audience. And that was a very important moment. We had first listened to the episodes and also Agnes was there physically herself. And while I was playing the third song out of seven, I felt I started to cry during playing. I was sobbing. It was a sort of crying after closing four years of a process, but also allowing myself to cry for the sadness of other people 